A note to listeners, the following podcast contains material that may not be appropriate for all audiences. Previously on Father Wants Us Dead. I got a call from the Newark FBI and they told me like, we got him. And I went, you got who? <laughs> you know, I was like, we got John List. I was looking at him through the rearview mirror and I saw a little tear come down his right eye. And that was it. It was like one tear. And he hands me a, a newspaper and it's got a picture of John List on the front of it or Robert Clark as we know it. So that woman was his wife. She obviously was devastated because she knew this person as Robert Clark and been living a lie the whole time. Hello, Dolores. Yeah. I'm Jessica Remo. And I'm Rebecca Everett. And this is Father Wants Us Dead, a podcast about the John List murders from NJ.com and the Star Ledger. Now, Jess, in our last episode, we talked about that incredible moment in 1989 when police in New Jersey got the news they thought would never come. John List was captured. And now, the fingerprints confirming his identity were being faxed to the Union County Prosecutor's Office. I remember my office was about 10 feet from the fax machine, and that's when I realized, like, oh my God, they got this guy. This is Brian Gillette. In 1989, he's a 32-year-old assistant prosecutor feeling the excitement as List's fingerprints came slowly through the fax machine. When List killed his family and vanished, Gillette was an eighth grader in New Providence, a town just a few minutes from Westfield. This case creeped him out when he was a kid. He told us how a friend's sister once drove them through the list's old neighborhood to try to spook them. Like you're, you're driving by, you know, like maybe John List is going to jump out of the bushes or something. By 1989, Gillette's been at the prosecutor's office for six years, mostly handling white-collar crime and corruption. He's tried a couple homicides before, but the List case is not the kind that would usually fall into his lap. Legendary Union County prosecutor Eleanor Clark was leading the prosecution of John List. And every attorney wants to be her second seat. Gillette never thought he was the one about to be handed the case of a lifetime. I often tell people that the reason I got involved in the case because I was the only person that didn't ask for it. I can't remember if I was out to lunch with Eleanor Clark or something, but the prosecutor came over to me and he said, how would you like to try John List with Eleanor Clark? And I'm like, I looked at him like, you think I'm going to say no? You know, of course I would do it. Of course I would do it. I was so honored. I was so excited. Like, of course I'll try this case. Gillette was suddenly on one of the biggest murder trials New Jersey had seen in decades or really ever, the case of an emotionless killer who wiped out his family and then just disappeared. And he might have disappeared forever if it weren't for the cops and America's Most Wanted and dear old Wanda Flannery. But by the end of June 1989, a little less than a month since the FBI agents caught him at his accounting office, List had been extradited. He was on a flight from Virginia to Newark. And then 
this man no one had laid eyes on in 18 years was being led into a packed courtroom in Elizabeth, New Jersey. And that's where Gillette finally gets his first look at this mysterious, spine-chilling killer from his youth. It was just like a cold wind in the courtroom. He just kind of looked at everything. He had a very deep voice. I mean, he wasn't like wild-eyed or anything. He was just so calm. He was just creepy, like a, like a psychopath. What a scene. I mean, Jess, we've watched the newsreels of List's arraignment, and it feels like such a triumphant moment. You know, the judge is reading the charges against him. He's finally in handcuffs, and onlookers are trying to get a peep at him. But this isn't the finish line. The John List saga doesn't end here. It's just a whole new chapter, Rebecca. And this chapter is about List's latest attempt to escape accountability. Just like 18 years ago when he took off for Denver, he's not ready to do the time. But there is one thing going in his favor, and that's that the average person can't imagine that anyone in their right mind would do what he did. And if his attorney can convince 12 jurors that List wasn't in his right mind, not insane, but just not able to really think through what he was doing, he might be able to escape a life sentence. There's a chance he could do as little as 10 years. It's kind of the most brilliant defense ever, Rebecca, because now everything List did can be seen as signs that this guy is not normal and that he wasn't acting with a totally clear mind. And he's got one tough attorney. Public defender Elijah Miller is doing all he can to give List a fighting chance. From the arraignment through the 10-day trial, Miller pulls out all the stops. He's obviously up against tons of evidence, including List's own confession letter. And everyone's expecting a conviction, but it's not a done deal. I mean, can you imagine this? It's the trial of the century, the pressure these attorneys must have been under to win this. Yeah, I don't know if you could show your face in Union County if you were the prosecutor who couldn't put John List away for life. But Eleanor Clark and Gillette are doing everything they can to not let that happen. And Gillette said she was a brilliant prosecutor. Worked tirelessly. Her favorite food was mashed potatoes. As long as you gave her mashed potatoes, gravy, and coffee, and then she was smoking. She was happy, but she worked tirelessly. She was a great lawyer, and she thought outside of the box. I love this story about the mashed potatoes. I know, I wish we could have interviewed her, but she died in 2016. It seemed like she was such a badass in the courtroom. And as a reporter, it's so much more fun to cover a prosecutor who gets all fired up at a trial. Yeah, I think a lot of people assume trials are like those TV dramas or My Cousin Vinny or Legally Blonde, with people suddenly confessing on the stand or revealing some shocking new detail. But really, trials are usually pretty tedious to cover. Exactly. And a lot of the drama and the biggest decisions that determine how the case will go actually happen before the trial even starts. And that was certainly the case in March 1990, when John List was headed to trial. Because List's attorney was on the attack, trying to get the most important piece of evidence against List thrown out. Yep, that confession letter. 
this case hinges on what was going on in Liss's mind at the time of the killings. And the letter is his manifesto from that very day explaining his thinking. Here's Gillette talking about it. It was an incredibly important piece of evidence. It was a lot of circumstantial evidence that five people are dead, one guy's not dead, he probably did it, but it was so important. I mean, as a prosecutor, you know, for 27, 28 years, you never have enough evidence, you know, don't tell anybody, but you never have enough evidence because there can always be somebody on a jury that says, I I don't really believe that, I don't really think that, but here you had it in his handwriting. So the prosecutors are going to fight as hard as they can to keep that letter in evidence. And the man who would have to decide this, decide whether jurors could hear Liss's own words where he admits shooting everyone, and also how much he planned and thought about it, is Judge William Wertheimer. He'd been on the bench about five and a half years at that point. The assignment judge gave me the case to try, and John List and I, unfortunately, be forever entwined. I hope he's not in my obituary, but he might be. I interviewed Judge Wertheimer in his home in Westfield, just across town from where the List mansion once stood. He explained that Miller's first attempt to get the letter thrown out was arguing that police had entered the mansion illegally. Right, because there were some conflicting reports of how police entered the house. If Patty's drama coach had gone in first as he claimed, the search would have been illegal and the evidence might get tossed. But the judge decided that wasn't the case. He didn't believe the drama coach's story. And he said police were within their rights to enter because they had reason to fear that Alma List needed help. But Miller had another argument for getting the letter thrown out. He said it was inadmissible under the priest-penitent privilege. Here's Wertheimer explaining it. Well, priest-penitent privilege is when a uh, penitent confesses to a priest privately. The priest is not permitted under the privilege to divulge what he said. And that's supposed to be in secret. Pastor Raywinkle himself took the stand and agreed with List's attorney that the letter should have only been viewed by him. But after hearing all the arguments, the judge decided against that defense. He said List had very, very clearly abandoned his property, including the letter. It's not like he mailed it to the pastor. The main takeaway of that, in a long opinion, was that it didn't apply because he left it in, in a note that could be found by anybody. So it wasn't made in private or anything like that. And certainly no, no one could possibly think that that was going to be private communication. So List lost that round. He had also conceded another point to the prosecution when he finally agreed to admit that he was, in fact, John List and not Robert Clark. With those motions decided and the trial itself about to start, Miller has to put all his chips on one last line of defense. He's going to try to convince the jury that List was acting under something called a diminished mental capacity. Basically, he argued that List wasn't able to weigh the pros and cons when he decided to brutally kill his whole family. But before we get too far into the trial, Rebecca, we should explain the stakes here. List was being tried under the laws on the books in 1971 when he committed the crimes. 
So that meant the death penalty was off the table. Right. So prosecutors had to prove List acted willfully, deliberately, and with premeditation to get first-degree murder convictions. But List's defense attorney is going to argue that his client wasn't really acting deliberately. So if jurors agree with Miller and convict List of murder only in the second degree, he could be up for parole in as little as 10 years. And this focus on List's thinking, his state of mind, is why this trial relied so much on expert witnesses. Two psychologists examined him for the defense and forensic psychiatrist Stephen Simring for the prosecution. He interviewed List in a jail cell for four hours. It was recorded on video, and we tried to find a copy of it, but nobody could find it after all these years. But Gillette remembered watching the video, and he told us it was that calmness from List, again, that was so creepy. How often do you get to question, like, a mass murderer and say, you know, after you killed him, what'd you do? Did you eat a peanut butter and jelly sandwich? But no, it was, it was long. It was eerie. It was frightening. I mentioned to Jess, after the interview was over, I had an eight-track of the interview, and I watched it, and I was scared in my house by myself, and I knew he was in jail. He was so scary, and he was just, like, very quiet, didn't raise his voice, didn't cry, very just, like, matter-of-fact. He was the kind of guy that if the same circumstances happened, he'd do the same thing. He'd do the same thing. Maybe he'd use a better gun, who knows, but he would do the same thing again. Only John List could casually describe his crimes and his reasoning for four hours, knowing it was going to be used against him. Yep, because prosecutors are going to hit jurors over the head with every chilling thing he ever said. Because the state has been waiting 18 and a half years to try List for his crimes, to make sure he gets locked up for good. We'll see if his attorney can possibly save the infamous John Amol List from that fate after the break. So Jess, you've covered some really big trials where, you know, the courtroom is packed and the internet is going crazy for every update. But back in 1990, before court TV and the OJ trial, this sounded like a whole other kind of circus. Yeah, I mean, this was a big case locally, but there were national reporters from all over the country there. They even moved the trial to a bigger courtroom, but Ledger reporter Gabe Gluck said it was still overflowing. You needed to be down there early to ensure the fact that you got a seat in the courtroom. I mean, yes, there were seats for the press, but if you got there late, you weren't getting them. And I was down at the courthouse hours before the trial was going to start. And it's not just the media. Nobody wants to miss this show. There were all these regular people who just wanted to come and watch to catch a glimpse of this guy they'd seen on America's Most Wanted or had grown up hearing spooky stories about. Including none other than Conan O'Brien. Yeah, I I really couldn't believe it, but apparently he's a big true crime fan. We heard him on this podcast, My Favorite Murder, and he said that when he was a writer on SNL, he came to New Jersey to watch the trial. It's like everyone just couldn't get enough of this case. Gabe Gluck said it was the peak of his career, getting a story on the front page every day. 
we was selling so many papers in the Westfield area that the trucks would have to be sent out to make second deliveries to the news racks because they were selling out within an hour. There were no papers left. And the moment everyone had been waiting for, really for years, came on Monday, April 2nd, 1990. Opening statements. For his opening, Gillette simply stood before the jurors and read Liss' confession letter. It was the letter everyone had wanted to know the contents of for more than 18 years. And they heard every horrible word of it. Dear Pastor Ray Winkle, I'm very sorry to add all this additional burden to your work. I know that what has been done is wrong from all that I have been taught, and any reasons I might give will not make Gillette told the jurors that List was cruel, evil, and calculating. But List's attorney, Elijah Miller, painted a picture of a man simply overcome, out of step with the times, ill-equipped to deal with the crushing pressure of bankruptcy, and burdened by his ailing wife. We weren't able to interview Miller, but his opening statements were widely reported. He described his client as fragmented and convinced he needed to save his family by sending them to heaven. He hinted that medical experts would explain why List's mental state meant he was unable to weigh the options correctly. You can really see how Miller is giving it his all here. This was his best shot to prevent his client from rotting in prison for the rest of his life. He even told the jury that List killed, quote, with love in his heart. On the first day of testimony, the prosecution was just flying through witnesses. Seventeen people testified, mostly about steps List took to disappear, like his cover story about going to North Carolina or how he stopped the milk in the newspaper deliveries. The biggest revelations during the trial, beyond the contents of that confession letter, were Helen's syphilis diagnosis and the details about John and Helen's unhappy marriage, like how she told him he was half the man her first husband was. Helen's sister and brother-in-law, Jean and Jean Seifert, painted a particularly grim picture of their relationship. I asked Tim Seifert about this. He was living in Connecticut at the time, so they actually stayed with him during the trial. He said it was really hard on them. His parents were called to testify not just for the prosecution, but also for the defense, because they were some of the only people who really knew John List. And that's got to be so strange, too, because he's someone they used to care about. They actually met with List right before the trial, hoping for answers. They did talk to him. I believe my mom... Point blank asked him why he didn't kill himself. And I think she was a little surprised that he didn't, you know, based on his description of how he came about to kill them all. Do you know why your mom and dad wanted to go see him? Well, that was the thing. It's probably very similar to what I told you as to the reason why I wrote him. is probably to find out what in the world was going through his head that would make him feel that that was okay. I mean, that's basically it, Rebecca. Everyone wants to know what was going through John List's head. That was the crux of the trial. Right, and we've all seen it in the movies and TV. Not guilty by reason of insanity is basically on every third episode of Law & Order. But it's not easy to pull off that defense. And in this case, it required much more nuance. 
because the issue wasn't whether John List wasn't sane. Everyone agreed he wasn't. It was whether he was able to fully think through his plan. And that's a really, really specific thing to prove. So this is List's only chance, right? Yeah, prosecutors had to convince the jurors that the crimes were premeditated, willful, and deliberate, or the jury would have to convict him of that lesser crime. And obviously, all the planning and meticulous execution help prove premeditation and willfulness. So all that's left is deciding whether John List could really deliberate. But what does that even mean? Thankfully, the judge defined it pretty clearly. It means, can he weigh the pros and cons? In effect, could he have reconsidered his plan and stopped himself? And since List didn't testify about what was in his head, it came down to the testimony of the psychiatrists who interviewed him. For the prosecution, that was Dr. Simring. And for the defense, Drs. Alan Goldstein and Sheldon Miller. Here's how Simring described the situation. This was not a battle of the experts in a classical sense. The other two experts, Dr. Miller, Dr. Goldstein, and I, agreed on 95% of our findings. We agreed on the basic, very important issues that Mr. List was not mentally ill in any major way, that he was not hearing voices, that he did not have delusions, that he knew at all times what he was doing, so that 95% of the findings were in total agreement And the difference in our findings turned on some technical issues in the law. And that technical issue was whether once the idea of killing his family was in his head, could List ever change course? With his obsessive-compulsive personality disorder, could he have chosen not to kill them? That's a weird thing for a trial to hang on. And Dr. Miller has since died... But I did get to interview Dr. Goldstein. He brought up something that we've talked about before. Part of the obsessive compulsiveness, as you remember, I'm sure he turned the thermostat down. That wasn't to keep the bodies from smelling. It was so the pipes didn't break. Because I remember him saying, the banks didn't do anything. They have the mortgage on that. Why should I damage their home? Basically, examples like this helped bolster List's defense and prove his obsessiveness. He's fixed on the details. Goldstein said once List gets something in his head, he can't reevaluate. Once he latched on to the idea that the only way to solve the problem and to save everybody's souls was to kill them so they would go to heaven, he was unable to deliberate. Simring had a different take, though. He said List was able to deliberate. He told us in their interview, List was cool as a cucumber. He acted like it was just a normal conversation between professionals. Mr. List was a very polite, very well-mannered, very well-spoken. He appeared to enjoy talking to me. He knew perfectly well I was the expert hired by the bad guys, that is the prosecutor make any difference to him. And because List calmly detailed the killing of each person and all the steps he took, Simring ended up explaining a lot of that on the stand, telling the jury how List saw only a few options and chose the plan he thought was best. So, Rebecca, List was weighing the pros and cons. 
He just did a really bad job of it. So he tried to figure out a way out. But in thinking it through, it was all within his own head. Because he is the kind of person who is very, we say, obsessional, very detail-oriented. The kind of person who misses the forest for the trees, who sees all the details, but misses the larger picture. Also the kind of person who does not readily turn to others for help. So on April 12th, after nine days of testimony, 39 prosecution witnesses, and a dozen testifying for the defense, it's nearly time for the jury to decide List's fate. And closing arguments are the attorney's last chance to bring the jury over to their way of thinking. And they didn't hold back. Eleanor Clark skewered List. Here's Gillette again. She called him the hideous angel of death. And at one point, he must have laughed or smiled at something, and she said, have you no shame, John Amel List? And she, like, pointed at him. For his closing, the defense attorney talked for an hour, desperately trying to get the jurors to see that List was so overwhelmed that he couldn't really think through what he was doing. He said people who have that personality disorder get stuck on certain ideas. And then the judge sent the jury to deliberate. And Rebecca, we've sat around waiting for verdicts before, and Gillette said the same thing. It's just awful. The anticipation, the nervousness. But in this case, people didn't expect the jury to deliberate for very long. Which is why it was so nerve-wracking when they did. Especially for the prosecutors, holed up in a room upstairs in the courthouse, trying to soothe themselves with junk food. Everybody expected it to be done in a hurry, you know, five minutes ago. So it was just unnerving that it took that long. It was a lot of uh, teeth gnashing, like, why isn't the jury back? And then the jurors sent the judge a note. And then another. And then another. First, they asked for definitions of willful, premeditated, and deliberate, signaling that they were, you know, really thinking seriously about List's defense. Then they asked for two packs of cigarettes and stayed late into the afternoon. The jury, nine men and three women, went home for the night to sleep on it and came back the next day to deliberate for another few hours. And we now know what was taking so long. Jurors told reporters that there was one holdout, one person who was not convinced about List's state of mind. But just before noon on April 13th, After a total of nine hours over two days, the jury sent another note to the judge. They had a verdict. So all the nervous prosecutors, the defense attorney, the ever-stoic defendant, and a crush of reporters and onlookers crowded back into the courtroom. And then the jury came in. And the foreman, Ronald Fain, was asked how the jury ruled on the first of five counts against John Amel List. I was really looking at the jurors. I remember that after the first guilty, I turned to look at him, and he was like, you know, stone-faced, looking straight ahead. I think there was probably a (gasps) from the crowd, but there was no visible reaction from him, none at all. Guilty of first-degree murder on all five counts. Imagine how the prosecutors and the cops and the loved ones could finally breathe a sigh of relief after 18 and a half years. Absolutely. 
like you're confident, but there's always that worry it might not go your way. This has to feel like finally this guy's getting locked up for good. He's not going to disappear this time. And everyone wants to know what the heck was happening in that jury room. Why did it take so long? The foreman told reporters the jury kept rereading that confession letter. He said there was one line in the letter that finally convinced the holdout. Here's Gillette reading it for us. Originally, I'd planned this for November 1st, All Saints Day, but travel arrangements were delayed. I thought it would be an appropriate day for them to get to heaven. So List was capable of deliberating because he had reconsidered a key part of his plan, when to execute it. And that confession letter, the one List lawyer had fought so hard to keep out of the trial, made all the difference. John List had sealed and signed his own fate. List sentencing is scheduled for two weeks later, and again, the courtroom is packed. There's something people are hoping for. List didn't testify at trial, but he gets a chance to give a statement today. So will he? He does stand to speak, but if people were expecting any sort of gush of emotion or remorse or even anger, not going to happen. Judge Wertheimer said even as List is saying he's sorry, he's just cold as ice. Let me see. This is his entire statement to the court. Go ahead, read it for us. I wish to inform the court that I remain truly sorry for the tragedy that happened in 1971. I feel that due to my mental state at the time, I was unaccountable for what happened. I ask all those who were affected by this for their forgiveness, their understanding, and their prayers. Thank you. But Wertheimer wasn't going to let List off that easy. In our interview this spring, I had him read some of the statement he wrote and read in court that day. He called List a man without honor. His acts stand as a permanent, pathetic, and profane example of the potential of man's inhumanity to man. They will not be soon or easily forgotten, and the name of John Emil List will be eternally synonymous with concepts of selfishness, horror, and evil. He said that thanks to List, a generation of kids learned to fear that even their own father might kill them. So this man without honor deeply affected more than just his own family. And today there are those who live with very real, albeit hidden fears and phobias, which are the direct product of defendants' malevolent mind and wicked hand. And finally, he pronounces his sentence for one of New Jersey's most loathed killers. Five life sentences. But I thought it was appropriate that each of the victims had their own sentence, and I ran consecutively, so uh, he wasn't going to get out. And then, just like that, John List was led away to start his final chapter, prison life. It's honestly kind of satisfying to say that after all this. After the break, we'll take you inside the prison walls in Trenton during List's time there. He's a guy who loves rules and order, but now it's someone else's rules. 24 hours a day until you draw your last breath. 
So, Rebecca, we've talked about what it's like cold calling people who knew the list to talk about this awful crime from 50 years ago. But there were also some people who knew John List pretty well, but were a bit more complicated to reach. Hi, this is Rebecca. You have a prepaid call. You will not be charged for this call. This call is from George Corbett. An inmate at the New Jersey State Prison. To accept this call, press 5 now. To decline this call, hang up. Uh, hello. Hi, George. How are you? Hi. Uh, is this Rebecca Everett? Yes, it is. Thank you so much for calling. Oh, oh no problem. It's, it's taken this long to get your number activated. We wrote letters to several guys who were reportedly friendly with List in New Jersey State Prison. But the only one who was up for talking was George Corbett. And Jess, I was kind of expecting to just chat about what List got up to in prison, but as we started talking, it really struck me that of everyone I've interviewed in this whole project, this is the person who probably knew List the best, because they were friends for years. Corbett was only 22 when he went to prison for murder in 1996. And he and List became friends, despite the 42-year age difference. List had been locked up six years by that point, and Corbett said his notoriety didn't seem to matter much. Although an officer once told him that List got 470-something Father's Day cards his first year in lockup. Sent through the goodness of their hearts, right? I mean, these are from people who are obviously trying to mess with him. Pretty sure, yeah. Corbett said that List had a wry sense of humor and was clearly intelligent. But true to his nature, he liked things just so. He worked in the prison's print shop, keeping track of all the forms. He'd get mad if anyone touched his pencils. And Corbett said he'd ration his olives from the commissary to just two a day to make them last longer. It actually sounds like John List was made for prison. And there was this other example. Now, List by this point had diabetes, and he was supposed to be let out of his cell, cell 12, at a certain time every day to go get insulin shots. If the door didn't open up right away, if it took too long, he would scream out because normally it would open, you know, right on cue. And then if he had to say it a second time, he would get very agitated. You know, open 12, you bastard. And uh, <laughs> it got him in, you know, got him yelled at a couple times, but most, mostly the cops would just laugh it off. So now let's hear what List himself had to say about prison because we got to read some letters he sent to his old friend, Wally Parsons. The letters Wally's son, Jeff, showed us in that Home Depot parking lot in Richmond. And Jeff put it just right when he said the letters were more like journal entries than letters. Each one includes an entry from each day, detailing what List did, when he woke up, when he took a nap, when he did his own Lutheran church service, and what he watched on TV. But there was something more interesting in a letter from Christmas of 1995. List refers to Dolores as his bride. And this is surprising because I had thought Dolores had divorced him by then. She didn't go to the trial, and no reporters ever caught her visiting List. Yeah, but according to this, they were still married in the mid-90s. List even wrote in his memoir about her coming to visit him in prison. And we really have no idea when their relationship finally fell apart. We couldn't find any divorce or annulment records to answer that. All we know is that in List's memoir, 
His co-author, Austin Goodrich, noted that at some point, Dolores, quote, quietly got a divorce. So now let's jump ahead to the 2000s. John List agrees to give two TV interviews, one with American Justice and one with Connie Chung. And if he was trying to rehab his image, it didn't work. He comes off as totally heartless in both. Of course, George Corbett said List was pretty happy with the Connie Chung interview. Even though his buddies gave him some ribbing about his answer to how he could make a sandwich after killing his wife and mother. And then the next day after the interview, we were kind of talking about it at the table. And, you know, the big joke was his, his response to, I was hungry as to why he had, uh, why he sat there and ate with his, his wife laying on the floor. You know, like, did you have to say it like that? I was hungry. <laughs> you know it's bad when even your prison buddies are like, damn, that's cold. Then List's already bad health starts declining more. We can tell from the records he eventually had not just diabetes, but tachycardia, high blood pressure, trouble swallowing, and cataracts. Corbett remembers List voluntarily decided to move to the medical wing. And then, in March 2008, at the ripe old age of 82, it was finally Judgment Day for John List. He got pneumonia. They took him to St. Francis Medical Center about a mile and a half away but he was dead within four days. The death certificate said he had massive blood clots in his lungs. List actually died on Good Friday, ironically. And he believed he was going to heaven. He told American Justice that once he got there, he'd be reunited with his family and they'd all forgive each other. I'll see that insanity and raise you, Jess. I found an article in the archives about a nun who worked with prisoners there. She said John List asked her if he could become a saint. It really is incredible, Rebecca. I mean, how is he still able to convince himself that he's good, much less saintly? Just another John List mystery we're still trying to solve. And we'll dive into those mysteries, those unanswered questions, in our final episode. We'll look at everything from the rumors about a priceless Tiffany skylight in the mansion to the biggest question of all. What was really going on inside John List's head? For all his rationalizing, everything he wrote in that confession letter, did he really believe it? Or was it all a show? And we'll look back on the victims. What might have become of them? John List robbed them of a chance to find out. Finally, we're going to talk about the legacy of the John List case, from the books and movies it inspired to the people who can't stop thinking about it. Because when you learn that your neighbor or Sunday school teacher, or God forbid, your husband, commits a crime this wicked, that doesn't just go away. Even after 50 years. It had a Tiffany, you know, multicolored, incredible skylight that was just huge. My dad had said, of course, he was going under. If he had just sold that to somebody, he probably would have made out okay. This room is like this all floating around all the time that, that people have houses with Tiffany in it. And 99 times out of 100, it's, it's not Tiffany. 
Well, that's sort of one of the fundamental questions always in almost any psychiatric condition, and that is, is it nature or is it nurture? Gee, would Pat have ever made it? You know, what, what, what could she have become? Father Wants Us Dead is a production of NJ Advance Media. It's reported, written, and produced by us, Jessica Remo and Rebecca Everett. Christopher Kelly is our executive producer and director. Alyssa Pasagio and Kevin Whitmer are also executive producers. Father Wants Us Dead was recorded at Sound on Sound Studios in Montclair, New Jersey. Our sound designer, mixer, and editor is Jacob Stone. Jacob and Alex Ritchie composed the music. And Alex also helped mix the podcast. James Shapiro is our associate audio engineer with help from Natalie Patterson. Additional audio was provided by Adam Kolick and Andre Malock. Our website was designed by Allah Salim. Special thanks to all our sources who agreed to talk to us, even though we know it wasn't easy. You can visit fatherwantsusdead.com for more about the story including crime scene photos and other extras we couldn't fit into the show. And you can email us at inbox at fatherwantsusdead.com. Subscribe to Father Wants Us Dead wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're enjoying it, please rate and review it and help us spread the word.